Happy Thanksgiving to all of you who are celebrating this coming week. For the first time in years, I am actually in the United States and spending this time with friends and family. I hope you have a great time if you are celebrating too. And I wanted to share an encore presentation of a fan favorite that I recorded a few years back. The history of Thanksgiving, perhaps the ultimate immigrant story, people who packed up everything to start a new adventure in a new place. I hope you enjoy. This year, about 54 million Americans will travel more than 50 miles during Thanksgiving, and most of those people will be driving, according to AAA. However, it's a myth that the day before Thanksgiving is the busiest travel day of the year. That honor actually goes to several weekends throughout the summer. But that's not the only Thanksgiving myth out there. Don't worry, this episode is not about tearing down this revered holiday. In fact, I will tell you right now that Thanksgiving really is a tradition rooted in gratitude and peace. But it's also a holiday that is full of surprises that most people, Americans and non-Americans alike, don't really know about. Which is why I'm happy to share today's interview with Melanie Kirkpatrick, author of Thanksgiving, The Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience. We will discuss the history of this very American tradition, including who the pilgrims were and why they really came to the new world. It wasn't to flee religious persecution, if that's what you're thinking. Enjoy the episode. In most American schools, children participate in a play about Thanksgiving, portraying pilgrims and Native Americans breaking bread together in 1621. And if you grew up in New England as I did, you likely visited Plymouth Plantation, which is a recreation of the pilgrims' farming and fishing community. In the 17th century English village, you'll find actors portraying the pilgrims, and you're encouraged to explore their houses and ask them questions. And you can also visit the Wampanoag home site, where they recreated the home of an extended Wampanoag family from the 1600s. At this site, Wampanoag and other Native people are not role-playing, but they're speaking about Native history and culture from a modern perspective, and they're also working on traditional activities like weaving and boat building. It's a really cool place to check out. But if you haven't had a chance to visit Plymouth Plantation, you might not have a clear idea of who these Native people and English colonists were. What were the pilgrims even doing there? As I hinted before, the idea that they fled religious persecution is not accurate. Here's Melanie. The pilgrims were um, a group of religious dissenters who dissented from the Church of England. They eventually were persecuted for that. They fled to Holland, which um, in the 17th century had a, was about the only country in Europe that had a, a broad religious freedom. And so they were there for a number of years, and then they saw that their children were really becoming more Dutch than they than they liked, and they decided that they would move to the new world where they thought they could start anew and have their own community. When we talk about the pilgrims today, we're usually talking about both the saints, also known as separatists, and the strangers in Plymouth. FYI, they didn't call themselves pilgrims. We started calling them that in the 1800s. So as you heard Melanie say, the separatist saints were already enjoying religious freedom in Holland, but they decided to risk shipwreck and pirate attacks crossing the Atlantic because their children were becoming too much like the freewheeling Dutch. They wanted to maintain their English identity and remain under English rule, just really far away from them so they could worship in their own church. Plus, when it came to work, the Dutch discriminated against the pilgrims who were immigrants and kept them in low-paying, labor-intensive jobs. So the pilgrims decided they wanted to go to the New World, 
On the Mayflower, there were two groups. Uh, there were the um, the religious group, the Puritans, uh, and then there were also a group of people who were not as religious. They didn't necessarily follow um, the Calvinist teachings that that the religious members of the community followed. They might have been members of the Church of England, but they were skilled workers for the most part who were looking for a place to make a better life. These were called the strangers, and there were the saints and the strangers. The saints were the um, religious Calvinist um, people that we think of as seeking you know, more religious freedom, whereas the strangers were seeking more um, a freedom to create new and better lives for their families. But they couldn't afford to go there on their own. They had to make a pact with about 70 financial investors in London who created a joint stock company with the Pilgrims. In exchange for some basic supplies and passage on the Mayflower, which was a cargo ship that usually transported wine and cloth, the Pilgrims would work for these so-called merchant adventurers. They'd send them fur and timber and fish and whatever else they harvested. And after seven years, they would all split the assets. That was the plan anyway. But they were all a little unrealistic about the hardship of building a colony from scratch, and they had to renegotiate after the Pilgrims accrued massive debt and nearly starved to death. The Pilgrims originally planned to settle near New York, but they had a few false starts, and by the time they finally left England, where they picked up those strangers, it was already September and the weather was starting to get rough. Of the 102 passengers on the Mayflower, only 40 of them were separatist saints. The rest were sailing in pursuit of a better life, or the American dream as we call it today. After 66 days on a dark, cold, and damp ship, the Pilgrims and about 30 or so crew members landed in Cape Cod, and they decided to stay. After spending a few weeks exploring the area, they settled in Plymouth on December 16, 1620. Of course, Native American people were already living in the area. The Pilgrims didn't interact with them that much in the beginning, but they would not have survived without their help. By the time the first harvest in the New World came about in the the autumn of 1621, um, only half of them were left. And during that period, they had uh, been befriended by the um, head, Massaswa was his name, of the Wampanoan Confederation of um, Indians. And the, um, the Indians taught the pilgrims um, how to plant corn. And so corn was a staple in their, you know, after their first harvest. He, they also taught them how to plant uh, with the corn beans. And so we think that that was a, another staple of their diet going forward. And they helped them to fish. They showed them where um, productive fishing holes were and where they could also find lobsters and clams and oysters. So we think those were on the menu as well for the first Thanksgiving. It, it wasn't expected that the um, Native Americans would join them in this harvest feast that we call the first Thanksgiving, but um, they showed up. And uh, there were 90 braves, 90 men, and they brought with them three deer, uh, which was, you know, a huge amount of meat and should have lasted them three days or, or more. 
That first Thanksgiving did last three days, with the 90 native men and 50 or so pilgrims. Remember, half of them had died that first year, and they probably would have all been wiped out had the Native Americans not showed them how to survive. The two groups started out very wary of each other. Pilgrims even buried their dead at night so that the local Native people wouldn't know that they were losing numbers. And while they may still have been cautious of each other by the time that first Thanksgiving rolled around, they had also established a peace pact and friendships. Squanto was uh, a young Native American who befriended the pilgrims. And uh, some years before the pilgrims arrived, he had been kidnapped by uh, Europeans who had visited that area, the area of, of Plymouth, Massachusetts, taken to Europe where he, um, uh, taken to London, I believe, first, where he learned enough um English and made enough money to then um, get passage on a ship that was coming back to the New World, a trading ship. And uh, so he managed to come home, which was a great triumph for him. But then, incredibly, he was kidnapped a second time. And this time he was taken to, I believe it was Spain or Italy. Um, and some Catholic monks purchased him from the, um, the uh, ship and um, sheltered him. And eventually he made his way to London, where he uh, booked passage again on a ship coming to the New World. So when the pilgrims arrived, one day he, this Native American man walked out of the woods to their settlement and began speaking to them in English. And they were astounded. William Bradford, the governor, referred to him as a messenger from God. They thought, you know, this man had come to their aid. And indeed, he did. He was very helpful to them in getting settled there and teaching them how to plant corn and um, showing them where the where good fishing and good hunting was. And uh, when he died, uh, they mourned him as a great friend. I can't even imagine how shocking it must have been to the pilgrims when Squanto popped out of nowhere and started speaking English. A lot of us mistakenly think that the pilgrims were the first white people that the Native Americans saw in New England, but French fishermen and tradesmen had been exploring that area since the 1500s. Around 1615, Europeans brought with them infectious disease that killed many natives. In fact, the area where the pilgrims settled had been a tribal settlement until disease wiped out the indigenous people. Of course, the Native Americans were not one big monolithic group. They belonged to separate tribes that didn't always get along. So the ones with weaker numbers, thanks to European disease, had an incentive to ally themselves with the pilgrims when they showed up. That's another reason why breaking bread with them carried such significance. There are two first-hand accounts from that first Thanksgiving in Plymouth in 1621. One written by William Bradford, the governor of the Plymouth Colony, and one by Edward Winslow, who was a prominent member of Pilgrim Society. If you visit Plymouth, you can actually see objects owned by the Pilgrims, including Bradford's Bible and a portrait of Winslow. You can find this at the Pilgrim Hall Museum, which is the oldest museum in the U.S., 
in their writings, neither Bradford nor Winslow mentions the word Thanksgiving, because back then, the word Thanksgiving actually meant a religious day, to give thanks for something specific like rain during a drought. In 1621, when the colonists and Native Americans sat down together, they were giving general thanks, similar to the way we celebrate Thanksgiving today. Some point along the way, um, and it, uh, it happened first in Connecticut, the governors of the colony or um, the governors of individual communities decided to give thanks for general blessings, that is, for our everyday blessings. So they would call Thanksgivings and announce them in advance that the colony would hold a day of general Thanksgiving. It was often in the fall, but not always. Uh, So this happened first in Connecticut, as I said, and then it spread to the other colonies. Massachusetts, or at least Boston, was one of the last to call for a day of general Thanksgiving. And there were uh, ministers there who were skeptical of this idea because they thought if you called a a day to give thanks for general blessings, it, w- it could trivialize uh, the idea of thanksgiving. But eventually they came around and uh, Boston too had a, a day of general thanksgiving. What do you do on a day of celebration? You eat and you drink. So um, a communal meal became began to be associated with the holiday, especially toward the end of the sep- of the 17th century, and certainly as as we know, as the years went by, um, the meal became a very important part, the central part of Thanksgiving. But for me, that first Thanksgiving uh, celebrates the positive connections that the two groups of people have formed in that first year. What did this first Thanksgiving look like? You've likely seen representations of pilgrims in dark, somber clothes with big buckles on their hats, but they didn't dress like that. If you visit Plymouth Plantation or Pilgrim Hall Museum in Massachusetts, you'll learn that they dressed in bright colors like blue and violet and green. You might also imagine the Wampanoag men in full feathered Indian headdresses, but that isn't accurate either. A lot of the 19th century paintings of the first Thanksgiving show Native Americans wearing these elaborate headdresses, which were what the Plains Indians wore, but not the New England Indians. They might have had a single feather, but uh, they didn't wear the elaborate headdresses that that we saw in the tribes out west. We already mentioned that at that first Thanksgiving, those fancy pants pilgrims were eating oyster and lobster, Just kidding, those foods were not difficult to find and not considered posh at the time. But what else was on the menu? There probably was turkey. Um, One of the two eyewitness accounts mentioned that wild turkey were abundant. So they probably had turkey. We know they had venison because the Wampanoag um, braves brought with them three deer and a They also had other kinds of shellfish, which were abundant there. They probably had corn, which they would, they certainly had corn, which they would have grown. But um, it's kind of interesting for an American to think about what they 
didn't eat. They didn't have apples. Not apple pie is a staple at Thanksgiving dinners nowadays, but there were no apples in the New World. Eventually, uh, the settlers brought apples with them, and by the end of the 17th century, apples were available. There were no potatoes because um, potatoes came from South America, not North America. And uh, they probably did not eat cranberries, uh, even though cranberries were grown in New England. And cranberries, uh, cranberry sauce is a feature of Thanksgiving dinner. But cranberries alone are, are too sour to eat. You have to mix them with something, and the pilgrims would not have had sugar with them. Sugar was very expensive. Um, they probably did not bring it with them on the Mayflower. So um, there might have been squashes, um, and if there was pumpkin, uh, it would have been uh, stewed more more likely, which is the way the Native Americans ate it. No pumpkin pie because there was no sugar, and um, uh, there was very little flour, if any. Thanksgiving is about more than food, of course. The spirit of the holiday is one of generosity. We volunteer more, we take up food collections for the poor, we invite friends to dine with us. Fun fact about generosity, Melanie notes in her book that in 2014, the American people donated about $358 billion to charity, most of that coming from individual donors. So Americans are actually the world's most generous people, according to Melanie. Not that it's a competition. The first example I could find uh, historically of Thanksgiving and uh, generosity was uh, sometime in the early 17th century, where a little town in Massachusetts specifically called on people to um, uh, take care of the poor on Thanksgiving Day. But since then, there have been many examples and uh, a long tradition of uh, caring for the poor on that day. Today in America, we um, find many people who uh, either give money to help uh, make sure that um, less fortunate people have a good dinner or they will volunteer to um, work at food kitchens um, or make homemade food for um, the less fortunate among them. Giving Tuesday is the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. It's kind of a counterpoint to Black Friday, which is the Friday after Thanksgiving when uh, uh, is a big shopping day and lots of stores have discounts. On Giving Tuesday, the idea is that um, you stop to give money to your favorite charity. It's what's called the beginning of the giving season in America, that season between Thanksgiving and Christmas when Americans make their, um, many Americans make their charitable contributions for the year. In addition to generosity, Thanksgiving is about gratitude, something that the pilgrims practiced every day. They gave thanks all the time for everything, before and after a meal, during their daily prayers. One thing that I found so interesting in Melanie's book is that the pilgrims didn't memorize prayers to recite. They considered that to be really inauthentic. One of the differences that the Calvinists, the people who had fled England for Holland and then the United States, one of the differences they had with the Church of England was about prayer. 
the pilgrims um, did not like the Book of Common Prayer, which was a group of set prayers that the members of the church would say at religious services. And there were, you know, there was a prayer for this and a prayer for that. The pilgrims believed in individual prayer, that instead of reading somebody or reciting somebody else's prayer, you should be speaking to God individually on your own. And there were some even who rejected the Lord's Prayer, which is you think of as the center point prayer of Christianity, uh, because it was taught by Jesus. But some pilgrims even rejected that, saying that um, you shouldn't use, you had to use your own words with which to communicate uh, with God. Of course, the pilgrims didn't invent giving thanks. Both Native American tribes and Europeans practiced Thanksgiving rituals, and they had other things in common too. In 1624, the pilgrim Edward Winslow published a book called Good News from New England, which includes details about his friendships and conversations with Native Americans, including the Native American leader, Combatant. They had dinner together, and the um, the chief of the village uh, where um, Winslow was visiting noted that um, Winslow bowed his head and was silent for a minute before he began to eat. And that asked him about it through a translator. And um, that sparked a conversation about religion. And Winslow told him about the Ten Commandments. And the uh, chief with whom he was speaking nodded and said, yes, yes, um, we believe the same thing. Our religion teaches us the same thing. Perhaps the biggest shock in Melanie's book is that Texas, Virginia, Florida, and Maine all claim that they hosted the first Thanksgiving. Texas claims that in 1598, a group of Spanish people who had been traveling for months throughout the desert stopped in San Elizario, where they rested and peacefully broke bread with Native Americans before moving on. This was a revelation to me when I was researching the history of Thanksgiving for my book, but um, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. Because when European explorers arrived in North America, of course they would have a religious ceremony of Thanksgiving, which um, is what happened in Florida and what happened in Texas. And uh, in both cases, there um, is evidence that there was a meal and that it was celebrated with the uh, Native Americans of those areas, celebrated together with them. So I I write about that um, in my book. And of course, those celebrations didn't uh, take on the significance that the first uh, Thanksgiving between the pilgrims and Native Americans have. But they're, I think, part of the the richness of the background of the holiday. And over the years, uh, sometimes there's uh, some humor attached to that. in the 1990s, the governor of, of Texas, uh, Ann Richards, who was a, a feisty character, even issued a proclamation calling uh, the Thanksgiving that took place outside of El Paso the first Thanksgiving rather than uh, the, um, the one that took place in Massachusetts. So um, there was a lot of uh, good-natured 
talk between her counterpart, the governor of Massachusetts, about that. But I think it's important to remember that, uh, of course, the first Thanksgivings were those uh, called by Native Americans. In 1789, George Washington proclaimed Thanksgiving to be a national holiday, which caused quite a stir in Congress. That year, the very first U.S. Congress met in New York City, which was the seat of the government at that time. As Melanie notes in her book, they accomplished a tremendous amount in their first six months, including establishing the court system and the departments of state, war, and treasury, and approving the 10 constitutional amendments that would become the Bill of Rights. Before they broke for September recess, a representative from New Jersey introduced a resolution for the president to proclaim a national day of Thanksgiving to, quote, allow Americans to express gratitude to God for the opportunity peaceably to establish a constitution of government for their safety and happiness. The reason it was controversial was um, it sparked a debate about presidential power, with some members of Congress arguing that the Constitution did not give um, the president the right to call a national Thanksgiving for two reasons. One, Thanksgiving was religious, and the president should not involve himself in anything um, having to do with religion. But second, the other argument was that this was a power that properly belonged to the individual states, not to the federal government. So eventually, Congress, uh, we don't know the exact result of the vote. Uh, they know We know he, they voted and they decided to um, go to Washington and ask him to call a Thanksgiving. Well, Washington did a really smart thing, and it makes you realize what a great politician he was, as well as a, a, a great general. He issued the proclamation, but then he invited the American people to celebrate. And he asked, he, he wrote, he sent a copy of his proclamation with a cover letter to the governor of every state. And he asked the governors to proclaim that day as a national Thanksgiving. Actually, it wasn't until 1941 that uh, we, had nat we had legislation that actually made it a federal holiday. Before that, a president would issue a proclamation naming a day of Thanksgiving, but it wasn't official. Instead, the individual governors would um, usually, not always, but usually proclaim a Thanksgiving in their state on the date that the president had named. One of the most fascinating people in Melanie's book is Sarah Josepha Hale, considered the godmother of Thanksgiving. But she was so much more than that. In the chapter dedicated to her, Melanie writes that Sarah was born in 1788 to a father who fought in the American Revolutionary War and a mother who believed in educating her daughters as much as her sons. Sarah's older brother went to Dartmouth College, and he thought it was really unfair that his sister couldn't attend college as well. So when he came home, he taught her what he learned, including Latin and math and philosophy. After Sarah married, she and her husband would read together every night and study languages and science. Unfortunately, her husband died of pneumonia when Sarah was only 34 and pregnant with their fifth child. 
Sarah needed money to support her family, and her late husband's friends helped her get a job doing needlework, and she also sold a book of poetry. But her big break came in 1827 when her anti-slavery novel, Northwood, A Tale of New England, became a bestseller. This led her to become editor of a woman's magazine that she grew from a readership of 10,000 to 150,000 monthly paid subscribers, and many more people borrowed copies to read. By the time of the Civil War, Godey's Lady Book was the most popular periodical in the U.S. At that time, most American magazines just copied what they saw in England, but Sarah thought that Americans wanted to read about American life, and so she started hiring writers, American writers, like Edgar Allan Poe and Harriet Beecher Stowe. In her personal life, Sarah fought for higher wages and property rights for women, She created the first daycare center for children and the first public playground. She wrote poetry and fiction and even a reference book on women in history. Fun fact, did you ever sing Mary Had a Little Lamb? Sarah Joseph Hale wrote that. And she also campaigned for an official Thanksgiving holiday for the entire country. Sarah Joseph Hale was um, the editor of the most popular magazine in the first half of the uh, 19th century, that is before the Civil War. She was a New Englander, and Thanksgiving was the, the main holiday of the year. She loved Thanksgiving, and she thought that it, um, if everybody around the country could celebrate it on one date, that would it would help keep the country united and might forestall war. So she um, campaigned for Thanksgiving. Her campaign encouraged uh, the individual states to have Thanksgivings, which um, most of them did, but they would celebrate on different days. So you'd have a situation where one state could celebrate in November or another, maybe even in October, and there even were states that were celebrating at the beginning of December. Uh, but in addition to writing about Thanksgiving all the time, she she wrote letters to prominent people, including presidents, And it's a testament of her popularity and her celebrity, I guess, that um, presidents wrote back to her. And we have handwritten letters from presidents, Millard Fillmore and others, explaining why they did not want to call a national Thanksgiving, usually saying that they thought that that was a power that belonged to the individual governors, not the president of the United States. But then finally, she, Sarah Joseph Hale persevered. She wrote to lots of governors. She wrote to lots of other public figures. And in 1863, Lincoln agreed. He decided it was, a, I think, a really bold mode move because the country was at war. And he decided that he would issue a proclamation for a national Thanksgiving. And it's if you go back and read his proclamation, it's very moving because he talks about all the blessings that America can be grateful for. And then he goes on and asks that everybody in the country celebrate as one. And it's, um, it's a, um, a hopeful message he doesn't talk about enemies or um, specific battles. He makes reference to the war, but he says it's going to be over and we have to come together 
it's uh, um, I, I found it a very profoundly hopeful message and offering Americans a vision of peace. So um, he did this in 1863. There was a Thanksgiving the following year, too. And then he was, of course, assassinated. But uh, Johnson, Andrew Johnson, the next president, um, followed his example, as did every president who has followed. So Lincoln's proclamation is is known as the the first um, in and kind of the ancestor of our current Thanksgiving Day, because uh, as I said, every president since Lincoln has called for a national Thanksgiving. But as Melanie mentioned earlier, it wasn't until 1941 that Congress signed into law that Thanksgiving Day is to be held on the fourth Thursday in November. This came after a madcap experiment by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to change the usual timing of Thanksgiving in the 1930s. Thanksgiving had always been the last Thursday of November since Lincoln. He, um, Roosevelt thought that he could help boost the economy if he gave more shopping days between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So he changed the date, and this caused a huge national uproar, and half the governors decided to go along with Roosevelt's new date, and the other half said, no, we're traditionalists, we're going to stay with the original last Thursday in uh, November. So for a few years there, Americans celebrated uh, not on the same day, but on two different days. And finally, in 1941, Roosevelt admitted that he'd made a mistake, that this wasn't helping the economy, and that um, this was the last year he was going to call for, uh, he wasn't going to call again for a, a separate day of Thanksgiving. And Congress agreed on a piece of legislation that would make Thanksgiving the fourth Thursday of every November. And so it has been ever since. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Presidents admitting when they're wrong? Working with Congress in the States? Sharing messages of hope and unity? Let's offer some Thanksgiving prayers to keep this American tradition alive. Before we go, I would like to touch on some other Thanksgiving traditions that have evolved over the years. Perhaps the tradition that has expanded the most globally is Black Friday. Since the Plymouth Plantation venture was funded by merchants expecting to make a buck, perhaps it is not surprising that we now have so many shopping traditions associated with Thanksgiving. We've got Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday... Did you ever hear that Black Friday got its name because it's the time of year when the store's finances go from being in the red to in the black? Supposedly, that is a myth. The name Black Friday, we think, came from Philadelphia in the 1970s when uh, there was a a football game. I think it was Army-Navy, if I'm remembering correctly, played traditionally in Philadelphia on the day after Thanksgiving. And uh, the traffic was terrible. And uh, a newspaper reporter referred to the congestion and, you know, all the bad traffic as Black Friday. Of course, also on the Friday after Thanksgiving, there a lot of people are shopping, getting uh, a head start on the Christmas season. So um, that name stuck 
And over the years, it's now come to refer to the shopping frenzy that takes place on that day. So we can trace the origins of Black Friday back to horrible football traffic. Personally, on Thanksgiving, I would rather watch a holiday movie than sports, but many, many, many people think otherwise. Watching football and playing football on Thanksgiving is a tradition that goes back to the 1800s, at least, maybe even earlier. American football uh, began in the late 1860s um, with a game between Princeton and Rutgers. And then in the 1870s, a Thanksgiving Day game uh, began to be played in New York City between Princeton and Yale. This became a, um, a big celebratory event with everybody in New York City. Shopkeepers would decorate uh, their store windows in the school colors, and there was a, um, a parade, and so it became a big deal in New York City. And then it caught on, this football game on Thanksgiving Day caught on in other cities. And by the end of the 19th century, there were football games uh, all around the country, sometimes uh, you know big college games, other time high school games, and it became a tradition. But uh, there is some evidence that the uh, Wampanoag uh, Native Americans played a game that was similar to football uh, or soccer. So I, I like to think that maybe even football took place at the at the very first Thanksgiving in Plymouth. There's no evidence for that though. While researching her book, Melanie visited a New York City high school for students who immigrated to the U.S. It's called Newcomers High, and these kids sound so inspiring. It's a public high school, and kids who are new to the country, and maybe their English skills aren't good enough to go to a, a regular public high school. Instead, they go to Newcomers High School for a year or two where they learn English and also follow the um, the, the regular curriculum. But um, I, I spent a day at the high school, and these kids were amazing. I asked them, what Thanksgiving meant to them for many. It was a few days, a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. And for most of them, it was going to be their first Thanksgiving. For a few, it was going to be their second Thanksgiving. And these um, young people really identified with the pilgrims. Um, one boy told me that he was from Tibet. Tibet is a country that hasn't existed since China invaded in 1950. And he said in, so China, it's now part of China. And he said in, in China, I couldn't practice my religion freely. So my family came to this country. And after he finished speaking, a girl from Egypt spoke up and said, my family um, are cops. That's a form of Christianity. And in Egypt, we couldn't practice um, Christianity freely. So that's why we came to New York. So, um, and then there were other kids who talked about coming here so that their families could have um, better lives. A girl from Haiti spoke about that. So you, you hear these kids in the 21st century uh, talking in a way that the pilgrims would have spoken almost 400 years ago about why they came to the new world. 
Decades after the first Thanksgiving, relations between the English settlers and the Native Americans turned deadly, and there are some people today who consider Thanksgiving a day of mourning because of the later history when Native Americans were killed and driven off their land. This is a true and tragic part of America's past, and it needs to be remembered. But it's also true that the first Thanksgiving that we celebrate today actually is rooted in peace and respect. Centuries later, as we figuratively tear ourselves apart over differences on social media, let's take some time to reflect on the Pilgrims' immigration story, how they were welcomed, and how they worked with America's Native people to survive. Look back uh, to the time of the first Thanksgiving and the amity, the peace, the companionship that took place um, at that time. And remember that um, the ghosts of the pilgrims and the Indians are sitting around our Thanksgiving table today. I also think uh, in this polarized political and cultural age that we live in here in America, I think it's also good to look back at the, in, to 1863, which is the time of the first in the, the modern day Thanksgivings. And remember that we've gone through difficult times before, uh, and in nothing that even has come close to fighting a civil war, which was what we were engaged in in 1863. And it's important to focus on Thanksgiving Day, on what unites us, not on what divides us. Thank you to my guest, Melanie Kirkpatrick. You can find her book, Thanksgiving, The Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience, in the usual places online, at Barnes & Noble, and at other bookstores. Learn more about Melanie at her website, melaniekirkpatrick.com. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and share this episode with a friend. That is the best way to support and grow the show. That's all for now. Wherever you're from this week, I hope you can enjoy good food and great company. Let's turn off the TV, switch off our phones, and count our blessings. Thanks for listening and have a beautiful week wherever you are. Hey, let's continue the conversation. Head on over to my blog on Substack for more content on how to thrive through better communication, stoicism, and global exploration. That is right. Blogging is cool again over on the Substack platform. There you can chat with me in the comments, and I have plenty of bonuses for paid subscribers, or you can just read for free. So click the link in the episode notes to access the Substack Live Without Borders.